evidence and answers. The Hippocratic Oath explicitly prohibits doctors from giving their patients poisons to end life. So traditionally, euthanasia and assisted suicide have not been considered legitimate medical acts. How much do we know about the euthanasia movement? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zukran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on Evidence and Answers, Pat will interview Dr. Craig Nakatsuka and discuss this topic of euthanasia. If you're unable to hear this entire broadcast, all of our messages are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Here's Pat now with part one of this interview with Dr. Craig Nakatsuka. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and provide biblical answers to the issues of today. Well, one of the issues we are battling today is euthanasia. It is said abortion is prenatal euthanasia and euthanasia is postnatal abortion. Philosopher Paul Copan and Robertson McQuilkin write, How we treat life from the unborn in the womb to those dying while under hospice care is an indication of how civilized or uncivilized we are. How we treat individual human life, especially the weak and vulnerable, is a test of not only society's moral integrity, but also its social durability. Euthanasia is on the forefront of our culture today, and to help us address this issue from a medical perspective is Dr. Craig Nakatsuka. Craig Nakatsuka is an internal medicine physician. He recently retired from the Kaiser Medical Group in October after 34 years of practice. And during the last 13 years of practice, his focus was upon long-term care and palliative care, visiting patients in nursing homes, care homes, and homes and supporting patients with advanced illnesses and those in the last chapter of their lives. He is a graduate of Wheaton College and has completed his medical school training at the John A. Burns School of Medicine. So, Craig, welcome to Evidence and Answers. Thank you very much, Pat. Well, doctor, as we begin, let's define euthanasia. What do we mean by euthanasia? So, euthanasia involves the physician as the active agent in the process of having someone killed, essentially. Just as you think of pets as being euthanized, where there is actually an active involvement of an agent in that, in this case for euthanizing human beings, there usually is a physician as the individual who is an active agent, meaning they often are instilling the intravenous medication to allow for a virtually instantaneous death. The physician is an active part of someone's death. That seems to go against the Hippocratic Oath here that doctors take, which states, I will neither give a deadly drug to anybody who asks for it, nor will I make a suggestion to this effect. Similarly, I will not give to a woman an abortive remedy in purity and holiness, I will guard my life and my art. Seems to be contrary to that, doctor. I think so. I mean, that Hippocratic Oath is there for a reason, is that with all the temptations of just difficult patients, of all the hard work that it takes to get someone healed or at least prolonging their life, it can be sometimes very troublesome, it can be very wearisome, 
And that is there for a reason, uh, for an ethical reason, at, at, at its foundation for physicians. Now, the other side tries to argue and say, well, but if you take it on balance that there are individuals that are suffering so much with unbearable suffering at the end of their lives, that is more humane to just let them go if that's their choice. But really, at its bedrock, we as physicians, when it comes down to the actual process of euthanasia, certainly do, do not want to be right in the middle of it. Similarly, as we do not want to be right in the middle of executing prisoners on death row, where we would have to be the active agent. Well, you know, Craig, give us a brief overview of the development of euthanasia in the United States. I mean, 30 years ago, I think we were introduced to Jack Kevorkian. And I think most of us were taken aback by him and the things that he was doing. But now there are several states that have passed bills allowing euthanasia. So just give us a brief overview of how it developed here in the U.S. Actually, the whole Jack Kevorkian event that occurred back when, if anything, allowed the culture to react and even revolt against something that seemed so repugnant at that time. But what has happened in the last, basically, I'll say a decade, Oregon, yes, has legalized this now for about 17 or 18 years. But over the last decade, there has been a national advocacy group that has been extremely seductive and alluring in trying to present their attempts to legalize what's in the United States called physician-assisted suicide or medical aid in dying in a way to sway the public that this is the most humane, caring thing that could ever be done, also in the name of individual rights. And that's why I actually speak out so much against that, because it's not strictly, in my mind, the physicians so strongly being opposed to this, as an ethical position, but also to see the seductiveness and I, I will say the downright evil of the process by this national advocacy group in trying to have states pass this. And one by one, states are slowly beginning to consider it and a few states have passed it. Now you talked about physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia. What's the difference between physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia? So every single state, or I should say country, especially in Europe, has always started off with a legalization of physician-assisted suicide. And the difference is that physician-assisted suicide starts off with the boundaries being, or limitations, that the physician is limited to simply being the prescriber of the lethal medication. From there on, theoretically, the individual requester for the prescription is supposed to independently take the medication on his own, and therefore in this case it's usually oral medications, without any help. But in every single situation, the slippery slope has been very, very real, where because some of the vulnerable elderly and disabled certainly do, do not have the physical means to be able to take the medications or actually may have swallowing problems, that quickly it moves on to euthanasia where the physician becomes the active agent in the killing of the individual. So let's go over that again. So physician-assisted suicide is where the doctor prescribes the medication, but the patient 
independently has to take that medication. Usually you said it's orally taken. So Correct. describe that for us. This may be a bit graphic for this show, but to explain, the most commonly used drugs up until about two or three years ago were barbiturate, pentobarbital and cecobarbital. And with some good reason that these two drugs were chosen because these were the two very drugs that were used on death row for the execution of uh, death row prisoners. Pentobarbital was the maker of that, stopped making it, and the European Union stopped importing it to the United States on ethical grounds. They didn't feel that there should be offering a drug for, for lethal execution. That left the most commonly used drug being cecobarbital. Now, in order to allow for a swift and effective death, supposedly, the standard dose is 9 grams of cecobarbital. Cecobarbital comes as 100 and 200 milligram tablets. It's a little harder to get capsules. It's a little harder to get a 200 milligram capsules. And so, in general, most people who have that prescription will need to ingest a minimum of 90 capsules to do that. Wow, 90, 90. Yes. Wow. They are trying to come up with more convenient combinations, but again, this is kind of a hurried, rush job with no vetting in the process, just the opposite of how we have the Federal Drug Administration oversight of drugs for development in the United States for, for healing and, and preventing illnesses on people here. That sometimes takes a two-year process. There's just a quick rush job to try and come up with other medications to allow for lethal ingestion. And so the patient has to individually, without any assistance, swallow 90 of these pills. So the National Advocacy Group tries to have these ads or stories of how tranquil and peaceful the ending will be with the loving family surrounding this person and the person somehow just like Socrates took uh, hemlock, which by the way the, the original name of this advocacy group was the Hemlock Society, but that you'd be surrounded in this tranquil uh, scene with candlelight and the person takes the medication and just passes away very peacefully. In truth, what often happens is family members have to frantically open up these capsules and take out the powder, mix it up into a slurry, add some honey because it's very, very bitter, and have this person swallow the medication in 10 to 20 minutes, hopefully all of it, and hope that then that person passes away peacefully after that. It is far from tranquil. Wow. Now, I can just imagine, I mean, in the middle, what if the person changes his mind or is unable to finish? So... Even the, those who are proponents of this really take a second look if they actually look at the bills that are proposed because of what you exactly said, is that there is nothing in the bills that are proposed that you mandate a physician provider be there or some objective witness of this. And indeed, there is that vacuum of information. What indeed happens if somebody changes their mind and there is nobody to witness that and there may be someone with reasons, you know, other than good ones for wanting this person to pass away for, say, economic reasons or other reasons. Wow. Now, euthanasia. Now, there's different types of euthanasia, right? There's active and passive euthanasia. Explain the difference between the two. In general, active euthanasia, probably the best example is in Switzerland, I believe, where active euthanasia is with 
a person lying at the bed and an injection being given right there on the spot by a provider and that person passing away. Passive euthanasia probably involves somewhat something similar to physician-assisted suicide where the person passively is allowing someone to do that to them. Actually, I, I myself am a bit not too sure what the actual distinction of that is. Basically, both sides, the agent as well as the patient, has a little less of a role in the immediate execution of the process. I, I think that's the best way I can explain it. I, I'm not too clear on the actual distinction, mainly because we don't have euthanasia in this country. Now, there's a difference between euthanasia and allowing nature to take its course, right? And if someone is dying of a terminal illness, to give that person comfort and counsel until, you know, the body naturally shuts down and, you know, God takes them home compared to euthanasia. Ex explain the difference there. So let me start off by one of the arguments. and I, I want to give a counter-argument to those who are so strongly wedded to individual rights, wedded to individual rights, and state that this should be an individual right of the very few who would take advantage of that. In this state of Hawaii, had this bill passed, it was assumed that only based upon the Oregon experience, 40 people a year would be taking advantage of that. And my strong feeling is that without an awareness and actually advocacy for support of those in their last chapter of lives. And I mean, we're talking about support, not just with physical symptoms of pain and nausea, anxiety, of which I am specifically trained for that, but also to have support on the existential, the spiritual, the, the social, the psychological level. If individuals are not aware of this kind of support, which is what palliative care, the, 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 what I was doing towards the last decade of my life involved with, a career involved with, without having that opportunity and awareness of the public for that, then you are robbing the greater number of vulnerable people to allow death naturally because they can be reassured that they can be supported and things can go very, very well towards the end. And that would be the optimum in allowing a good natural death. Now, that's something that our culture ignores, I think wants to put away the final moments of someone's life or, you know, facing death. You know, whereas in previous generations, you know, we were all there to care for the elderly person and be there when they passed away. But that's something we don't want to do in our present culture. We do all we can to ignore death. You know, I notice less and less are going to visit graves and, you know, be there at the bedside when someone passes away. But there's a great a peace or a comfort, not only to the patient, but to the family members to care for that individual, a great growing and maturing process to care for that individual and see them in their final days. It's missing in when we want to expedite their death, isn't that? That's why at its foundation, I always say that this is an assault on personhood. Because with the rise in health care costs, the increasing longevity of individuals in the United States, and yes, there is a burden of care that's involved with that, is culture will start to see individuals as being expendable. 
And indeed, I think of the generation below me that if they actually were to witness someone just conveniently just ending their lives like that, then more and more they will see people as expendable and indeed, as you said, Pat, not get to be involved in that rich experience of caregiving, of sacrifice, and the frustrations that go along with that. But that's part of the redemptive nature of love and suffering and compassion. The, the word def uh, compassion by definition means coming alongside with someone suffering. That's what compassion is. And all that will start to be lost in this so-called me society, I want it now society, and it will really be truly the fragmentation and the loss of fundamental principles within society. Yes, you know, values that make for a healthy society based upon biblical principles of yes. love, sacrifice, caring for others, especially those who are weak and vulnerable. And that would, you know, certainly be the elderly there. So there's a connection between abortion and euthanasia, isn't there? Absolutely. That if we don't care about life before the womb, then that also carries over to the end of life as well. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting with all that pressure now on Planned Parenthood and listening to the news. The same thing is playing out on both ends where both sides want to come up with stories. And a lot of the stories from the proponents for preserving abortion rights and for advocating for death rights, let's say, towards the end of life, are stories that allow, therefore, how a person is so-called free to be able to pursue a career not being held back by economics in relationship to caring for a newborn. And then the other side is kind of being freed from that care of the elderly and all that they were suffering for. And nothing in this conversation goes into what care is involved. Yes, care is hard work. Care is frustrating at times. Care is sacrificial. But that is a part of our humanity and of what God the Father has done for us by having, you know, just this Easter time, the fact that Christ, he sent his son to die for us. That is, we are actually rejecting all of that if we by any means feel that we should at all allow abortion or in this case, euthanasia to ever happen. Now, Craig, having talked to several people who used to run abortion clinics, they say what drives really the abortion industry is not care for the woman, and especially not care for the baby inside of her, but really it's money. There's a lot of money to be made in abortion. It's a multi-billion dollar industry that drives the abortion industry. Is that the same with euthanasia? I will take a chance and be transparent on this. I'm taking a risk by saying this, but I actually do part-time work now for hospice. And I did also inpatient consultation for uh, palliative care. By the way, just a real brief thing on palliative care. My work involved in the inpatient uh, sector is going in as a team with a chaplain, a nurse, a social worker, and myself to be able to meet the needs of patients and their caregivers in their last chapter. So we, we supported them in all those different ways. And when we did something like that, a lot of the patients said, you know, now we feel like we have hope because a lot of this is a fear of how the journey is going. 
On the economics of the issue, I will tell you that on the hospice side I ha- and the palliative care side, I would have referrals by hospital providers saying, can you see this patient and persuade them to go on hospice? And the agenda was because of rising health care costs, they actually just wanted to expedite the patient to get out of the hospital. Mm. Sometimes they were correct that there were unrealistic families, but there were other times when I said, wait a minute. What is driving this consultation, this this request for consultation from us? So it's already subtly happening now. If you then legalize something like this, certainly there's going to be that economics there. In fact, in Oregon and in California, there have been individuals who have been rejected for second or third line chemotherapeutic drugs, which may be justified in some situations where it was just a reach. But on the other hand, in that same letter of rejection, there would be included the option for end-of-life drugs with a price tag of, at that time, $40 or $80. So you can already see the so-called steering of the agenda towards economics. It actually has already happened. Wow. So... There are currently six states here in the U.S. that allow terminally ill patients to obtain prescriptions to end their lives here. That's correct. We had the bill here in Hawaii that was stopped temporarily for more research. But do you see this gaining momentum throughout the country, or do you see people stepping back saying, hey, wait a minute, let's take a look at this like we did in Hawaii? I actually think with... God showing up, His divine intervention, it it really was a miraculous thing. The National Advocacy Group thought it was a done deal because of this practically one-party Democratic state and their unexpected victory in California that they would take advantage of the California bounce. They poured in over a million dollars into a campaign. They had a veteran lobbyist for whom many of the legislators owed favors to. And it looked almost impossible that we would ever be able to stop that. And I think the National Advocacy Group assumed this would pass and they would move on to the Northeast to try state by state get um, these laws passed. We have really slowed down their momentum by this unexpected deferral. And I think and by next week, it's beyond the deadline for pulling it to a floor vote. So it's pretty much dead for this session. Well, now, there are <coughs> several countries that have legalized euthanasia, uh, mostly in Europe. I think the Netherlands was one of the first to legalize euthanasia. So we've been able to study the effects of euthanasia there. Uh, what are some of the effects we're seeing in that country? So the Netherlands especially started off, as I said, with physician-assisted suicide maybe about 20 to 25 years ago. They went on to make it passive and then active euthanasia. They broadened the scope from those with advanced illnesses who made a voluntary choice to broadening it to those with mental illness. It went from voluntary to involuntary, meaning that if there was someone who had advanced dementia, that someone else could make the decision for them. So it went from assisted suicide to euthanasia, from voluntary to involuntary, from physical illness to mental illness. And then it went to those that simply thought that life was unbearable. And it went from 18 years old down to a 15 to 17-year-old just because of the rigors of school and maybe bullying or anything, if they felt that life was just too unbearable, 
that they could request for euthanasia. The parents needed to be present, but they did not need parental consent. And it doesn't stop there. They actually have now allowances for 12 to 15-year-olds who are just struggling with adolescence, but they do, in that case, need parental permission. But that's how far things have gone. Now, you could say, yeah, but America would never go like that. That took 25 years to get to that situation. Well, Canada just passed both physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia just this past summer. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show today. If you find this broadcast to be of a great value to you, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, you may do so right there on the homepage of our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles, additional audio, and Pat's books. Be sure to share our website with your family, friends, and your church. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, please visit their website at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers. Answers.